So as a 25-year-old atheist, exposed to church for the very first time, I start reading my wife's Bible, the first Bible I've ever seen, ever held in my hand. I start reading it. And, um, of course, I'm going through a, a, a very uh, troubling season of life. That's what brought me to the place where I would even consider going to church in the first place. So here I have this Bible, and I'm reading this Bible. And I remember this moment when I was somewhere in the Pentateuch. I'd read Genesis, Exodus. I even read all the way through Leviticus. I was somewhere in Numbers, Deuteronomy, somewhere there. And I just remember even that early on in the narrative of Scripture, not knowing anything, I remember one day putting the Bible down and thinking to myself, at this point in my life, I really only know two things. One, that life is unpredictable and at times excruciatingly difficult and painful. And two, this book that I'm reading is unlike anything else that I have ever encountered in my life. That when you look at Scripture with brand new, fresh eyes, you, you're, you're struck by. It's almost as if the author of this book intentionally tries to do the opposite of what you would expect at every turn. It's so counter-cultural. It's so opposite of human wisdom and thinking. It's almost as if the God of the Scripture goes out of His way even to do the far-out things that He's doing in a way in which would leave us scratching our head and baffled. I mean, every single chapter in Scripture, if you really read it and think about it, leaves you a bit puzzled. This God who bursts forth on the scene, he creates a garden, puts two people in a garden, puts a tree in the midst of the garden, tells them not to eat of the tree. Causes me to start asking questions. Why'd you put the tree there? Wouldn't it have been better not to have the tree? Then they wouldn't have ate of the tree. Then we wouldn't have had the serpent situation. Then we wouldn't have gotten this big mess. But then I move on past that. Then I come along. Suddenly this man named Abram is introduced to us and God's going to create a people through this man. But God picks an old man, and he tells an old man, you're going to have a child. I mean a real old man. You're going to have a child. That's strange. Then he tells him you're going to have a child, but then he doesn't give him a child. He waits a while. Why does he wait a while? So that we'd be saying, why are you waiting a while? Why didn't you just give it to him when you told him you were going to give it to him? But he doesn't do that. Then all of a sudden, he, we move along. Moses comes on the scene again. Why Moses? This, this is the least likely character I'd choose. This guy's got a hot temper. He, I mean, he's, I mean, you know, it, it started out sweet in the basket and everything, but it went way bad after that. I mean, he, he was a rebellious cat. So he kills a couple people, man, gets run out of town, and, but this is God's man. So the way God chooses him is he decides to light a bush on fire that never burns out, and then the bush just draws him over to him. Then he tells him to do something, which is pretty crazy in the, if you think about it. But the way in which he does the whole thing, 
I mean, the frogs, the lice, the blood. I mean, the, the, all these plagues to, to get them out of Egypt. Like, what is that? And then when they're running out the whole Red Sea crossing thing, like, you know, this God, he is different. This is just different. And you just go from there, every single page of Scripture, every person that comes up, every name, every person we're introduced to, it's God chiseling away what they think and what we would think and doing things in a way that causes us to go, hmm, I wouldn't have thought of that. I wouldn't have done that. I mean, every single person. You know, he, he doesn't. I mean, just think about it. You know, he, he tells Jonah to go preach in Nineveh. Knowing full well Jonah's a head case. He knows that Jonah utterly hates the Ninevites. He knows that. So where does he send Jonah? I want you to go preach to the people you hate. Knows he's not going to do it. But God's like, I know you're not going to do it, but i got a little plan stacked up for you. As soon as you hit the water, it's going to get interesting. I mean, you ever thought to yourself, you ever been reading the Bible and just suddenly come to the realization that you're actually reading a story about words that a man is speaking while he's in the belly of a fish? Who thinks of this? And it just keeps going and keeps going. Jesus shows up on the scene. I mean, everybody else does the same thing. Jesus shows up on the scene. Everybody thinks he's doing one thing. He's always doing the other thing. Always. Every single time. His enemy is the religious people, yet he's the religious guru leader. Everybody thinks that he's going to free his people from oppression under Rome, he dies. I mean, he doesn't just kind of die. Like, he really dies. Graphically, horribly, agonizingly. Seems like the, the, the biggest tragedy, the most immense failure in, of all time. And yet, come to find out, it's the, the greatest victory that's ever been won. This is the God that we serve. And so when you're scratching your head and you're thinking to yourself, well, where am I? I mean, where am I, really? Where am I in my life today? How did I get here? What's happening? What's God doing? As I prayed for you and I thought about this time we'd spend together, I, I became increasingly concerned that there'd be faces in the crowd looking back at me that are, you're just watching the clock tick by. You're just passing time. It's just another week. It's just another Sunday. It's just another thing. You'll wake up tomorrow. You'll go back to the same old thing. You'll do the same old thing. And, and you're excited about things, but they're small things. 
I mean, the biggest thing in your life, maybe some upcoming vacation you have planned, or some opportunity you have, or whatever it is. But this amazing, utterly opposite God has done all this to deliver on a silver platter to us everything we could ever need or imagine. And the truth is, is that there are so many people who On the list of things you're most excited about, the first spiritual thing doesn't show up until somewhere on page two. What a shame. What a waste. All the excuses that run through your head, they're just excuses. They're empty. All the I'm too old, I've already done this, I've done that, I'm too young, I don't know enough, I'm here, I'm there, I'll... I mean, they're just empty. I've said them all. They're all empty and useless. Think about the God that we're here to celebrate. And think about what he's done. And think about all of the opportunities that have been afforded to every single person who calls him daddy. Just think about that for a moment. Now let's peer into... First Kings. Let's think about a passage of Scripture that's been given to us, I believe, for a number of reasons. But one certainly is for those times in life when we intellectually know that the Word of God is dependable. And we know that the power of God is, av is available Yet life is seemingly out of control and caught us off guard. I mean, we're just in a detour. We don't know what's going on. We don't understand. We thought we should be going this way. Now we're going that way. And we're fighting and we're hurting and we're bewildered and we're... God sends us this story of Elijah. It sort of rains down encouragement on us, but, but not in a, like a gentle rain. It's more like a meteor shower. It's the way it falls. And like I said, the, the Bible's consistent. It's filled with people who are no stranger to the rug getting jerked out from under them. We could think about Job. Boy, he's just paddling his, you know, he's paddling his canoe through life, looking at the scenery, got everything going on, and suddenly it's his children, possessions, his health. I mean, it is everything. It's just gone. Nothing makes sense anymore. Abraham's crazy journey, God promises him all these things, but then they never seem to happen, and so then he tries to make them happen, and it just keeps getting worse, and Then I just appreciate, you know, Psalm 93 that was read this morning. It makes me think about David and, my goodness, 
the disasters he found himself in, where he would pen words like the psalm in, the psalm in chapter 13, where David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Forever. This is the man after God's own heart. How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long? You know what David's saying in Psalm 13? He's saying, nothing that I can see with my eyes makes sense to me right now. Nothing. Everything hurts. I don't see a way through it. I can't find any meaning in it. I don't know what in the world's going on, but I know that it hurts. And the only one I know to turn to and the only one I, need, I know to cry out to is my heavenly father. So he pins the words that I just thought about how many times in my life I'd say the same thing, the exact same thing. And when you think about all the people who, whose lives went haywire in Scripture, you realize that they're rich, they're poor, they're young, they're old, they're Jew, they're Gentile, they're male, they're female. It's telling us something that nobody, nobody here, nobody is exempt from this. It doesn't matter who you are. You've got to know that there's going to be times when everything goes crazy. And in the midst of those detours, some last a moment, a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, a lifetime. In the midst of them, what are you going to do? How do you handle it? How do you get understanding out of it? Well, let me tell you what this morning is not, first of all, okay? This isn't going to be some kind of roadmap to getting you back to your desired destination. This isn't going to be, this is going to be the furthest thing from here's five simple little steps that you can do to get your life back on track. It's the wrong church for that message. No, I can't guarantee that through our conversation this morning, things in your life are going to get better. I have no authority to do that. Only a fool would write a book and say your best life now. I don't have any authority to say that. Instead, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at Elijah, and we're going to think about this narrative as if we were broken down on the side of the road in a detour, maybe out of gas, Lisa, and uh, a couple came by, and uh, I know it's not today because I filled it up yesterday, but it was on, I think, negative miles to go before it, you know, basically the dash just melts in her car. It's so out of gas that the the, the, the gauge is confused. Like zero is meaningless. You have zero miles to go. That means nothing to her. She's like, oh, I could, I'm, I'm totally fine, 100% fine. They ain't got nothing to worry about. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so there we are, broken down on the side of the road, out of gas. I want you to think about this as if uh, some sweet couple pulls up and opens their trunk and hands us a five-gallon can full of gas, and we're able to put gas in our car and get ourselves back going down the road. That's what this is going to be. 
You see, because sometimes a tank of gas is the only thing you need to get to your destination. But oftentimes that little tank of gas is just a bright spot in the midst of an otherwise very gloomy and difficult time. Are you with me? Okay. So let's just make sure we're thinking correctly as we move into this. 1 Kings 19 verse 1. Remember last week, you went through the story of the great victory on Mount Carmel. Elijah defeating all the false prophets of Baal. This amazing display of the power, glory, and authority of God. And the whole time, the whole time I'm halfway around the world, all I know is the text that Matt has before him, but I don't know anything about what he's going to say or how he's going to say it. But I remember waking up way before you came into this room last Sunday, and I'm halfway around the world, and I'm thinking to myself, God, help everybody to see that don't, don't, get, don't get lost in the entertainment of and the spectacle of the event on Mount Carmel, but help, help us to see again, yet again, that this God does everything in a way that you would never, ever think it would be. I'm not just going to show that I'm real. I'm, we're going we're gonna to douse the wood with water. I'm going to send fire from heaven. I'm gonna, I mean, it's just, he's an amazing God. It's very, very healthy for us to just continually remind ourselves of how unsearchable are his ways. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. So Ahab tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent the messenger, a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Now, so here we are. Elijah's at the pinnacle of victory. I mean, the sun has never shone brighter in his life. The birds are singing. Man, God has shown himself to be so powerful and mighty. It's sort of like all the things that he's been waiting to do. He's been preparing at Cherith. He's been preparing when the widow and Zarephath, the three and a half years of, of waiting for go time, show time. We're here. I mean, it's like, you know, man, it's, it's WrestleMania on Mount Carmel. I mean, it is happening. And chapter 19 opens with, our hero getting rocked, rattled to the core. Suddenly, all the sunshine and the birds chirp and go away and the clouds start to litter the sky and God seems to have disappeared. And it looks as though Elijah, the once powerful servant, is now kind of weak and vulnerable. I love this quote by A.W. Pink on his, in his uh, book on the life of Elijah. He says this. In passing from 1 Kings 18 to 1 Kings 19, we meet with a sudden and strange transition. It is as though the sun was shining brilliantly out of the clear sky and the next moment without warning, black clouds drape the heavens and crashes of thunder shake the earth. 
That's the transition from 18 to 19. And so we would say to ourselves, if we were people of the word, we would say, well, we shouldn't be surprised that there's a a shocking detour, some unexpected revelation. So we read verse 3. So when Elijah saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba. Now, it would make perfect sense that somebody who had just killed 450 false prophets, somebody who had just called fire down from heaven, somebody who had just exhibited not just the power of God, but his relationship to the God of that power, it would make perfect sense that Jezebel would come along with her little lame-o threat of, well, by tomorrow at this time, what happened to those prophets is going to happen to you. I mean, what I would expect Elijah to say is, girl, bring it on. You want some more fire on your head? Come get some. That would make perfect sense to me. I'm embarrassed to say that's what I'd say. But it's a warning for us. Like we we just cannot move past this moment. There's so many things in the weeks to come that I'm going to say. But we cannot move past this moment. Because we have to stop and say, now hold on a second. What's happening here? There's something peculiar, but not unique. There's something strange, but something that we seem to see a pattern of in Scripture. It exists in life, but we never want to recognize it or acknowledge it. And that is that Elijah fails in the very area of his strength. Just like you and just like me. Not in his weakness, which would make sense, which is what we try to pretend happens, but doesn't happen. Elijah is powerful. His strength is his boldness. And at the moment that he, he needs to reach into this giant vat of boldness that's within him and tell Jezebel to shut her mouth, he falls apart. The very thing that has been his characteristic, his courage, his power, is gone. You know... It's interesting that that happens. And I'd love for us to have a 30-minute conversation about that, but that's not the most important thing that's going on in the first two and a half verses. The crux of Elijah's response, the, the real sort of linchpin that, that's causing this whole thing to happen can be summed up in two words. And it's the same two words. The exact same two words that you will most frequently find 
at the beginning or the genesis of your life's most difficult moments. What just precedes your most bewildered moments in life, your most frustrating, dark seasons, just like Elijah, will have two simple words preceding that season. And those words are unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. Elijah hopes that by the victory on Mount Carmel, he's going to eradicate Baal worship. You know why? Because it makes perfect sense. Listen, the drought has, has vindicated him. The drought has proven that he is a prophet of God. I mean, the, 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 as he's walking uh, up to the battle on the mountain, every step he takes, the earth is cracking under his feet. Listen, the victory that he's just uh, experienced, who in their right mind would ever worship Baal after that? And not only that, just glance back to Chapter 18 at the end, verse 39, and look at what 1 Kings 18, 39 says. Now when all the people saw it, they, what did they do? They fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So if I'm Elijah, if you're Elijah, there's no doubt what we're thinking. It is go time, show time. We have won this thing. Baal is history. You'd have to be a raving lunatic. To even, even believe at any level that Baal's not a joke. No one would believe that. I mean, popular tide has turned. It's the revival moment that we've all been waiting for. And yet, the opposite happens. And we realize that this is sort of this moment where our lives find common ground with Elijah. I mean, there's a thousand ways that this is so real this morning in this room, in your lives. You've all walked this path, whether you realize it or not. It's that moment you realize that that real life has veered completely off the path that you expected it to take. And it's just utterly caught you off guard. So, the first thing we need to write out on our handout, the first principle we need to get drilled into our head is that false expectations grow in the soil of human reason. You see, it's not your fault necessarily. It's not my fault necessarily. Our flesh betrays us. I can't stand up here and say to you, well, you're, well, well, why would you think that? I mean, that would be foolish for you to have thought that. I mean, because in my flesh, I would have thought the same thing. And as I've thought about this for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know what I've thought about? I've, thought about, I've been analyzing my own life and my own thought patterns and the way I understand things. And I realize that the only places in my life where I, I rightly understand what's happening around me are the places that the Spirit has redeemed and revealed to me. 
And the places where trouble like an x-ray machine starts to reveal theological cancer in my soul is where I'm still walking in the flesh. Right? Yeah. So, human reason is where it grows. See, instead of revival breaking out, which would make perfect sense, no, no, all the hatred and all the vengeance of three and a half years of suffering is poured out right on Elijah. Instead of a king and queen falling on their face in repentance and saying, Elijah, please, uh, how may we know how to serve your God? That would make perfect sense to me. Nope. Mm -mm. Elijah comes to the same painful moment that we've all come to where we realize, you know what? The world doesn't revolve around us. Wow. Things don't go the way we think they're going to go. Imagine that. And our expectations are more often than not going to be unmet. We're wrong way more than we're right. And surprisingly, no matter how long this situation persists in our life and culture, so many of us are so resistant to grow and to change and to learn. See, the strangest thing of it all is, is Christians. Christians. We're some of the most susceptible people to this very lie because in our own mind when we're living rightly we somehow convince ourselves that bad things aren't going to happen or at least not as bad as they happen to other people who don't live rightly like we do. That's strange. See, it makes perfect sense to us that the way of the transgressor is hard. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, um, we have the expectation that if you do good things and if you live rightly, good things are going to happen to you. So if you go to church and read your Bible and pray and Try to be a good person, love your family, pet the dog, buy lemonade from the little girl on the corner with a stand. Well, then, you know, pay your taxes, be a good employee. Well, if you do all those things, good things are going to happen to you. And by all means, don't lose your temper in traffic. No, no, you, you could lose your salvation over that. Don't do that. Whatever you do. Mm -mm. We do all these things, and because we've stayed on the straight and narrow path, we fill ourselves with human wisdom of good expectations that all these things are going to happen. But unfortunately, see, all this weaves together. This play it safe mentality, which is really what it is, it's this risk averse Christianity, which is an oxymoron and makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But it's really the culture and time in which we live. It's sort of this, I'm going to play it safe philosophy. And first of all, the first failure of it is that it doesn't in any way protect you from the detours and the calamities in life. 
That's the first failure. But the, the bigger failure is, is that it's, it's not even the way in which we were intended to live. It's not even Christianity at all. And the, what ought to be the clue that lets us all in to, the, uh, to, to see the, the guy behind the curtain and to know that it's all a big sham is that it makes perfect human sense. Good life equals good expectations fulfilled. Bad life, good expectations unmet. See, that makes perfect sense. So that ought to, whenever it humanly makes sense, we ought to put the brakes on and go, wait a minute, that's wrong. That cannot be right. See, the problem with the whole idea is that God's path is a way more rugged path. It's way more exciting. It's way more challenging. It's it's way more everything. Like that whole do good things, good things happen. That is the most boring, uneventful, underutilized waste of life. That's what it is. It's a waste of life and an utter waste of the heavenly resources that have been poured out on our behalf. But instead, when somebody wants to shuck everything and live their life for the glory of God, step out into something scary and unpredictable and even dangerous. Oh, well, I, I don't know about that. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that that's wise. Well, I don't think that you're wise. It's what I don't think. And I know you're boring. Super boring. Now you got the keys to the spiritual Disneyland, but you're too chicken to put the key in the lock and unlock the gate and go in there and start frolicking around for the glory of God. I mean, so the problem with our expectations, number one, we got to move. Problem with our expectations, you're looking at all these blanks going, dear Lord, what's going to happen? The problem with our expectations, uh, I know it's not Brazil, so let's go. So there's three basic problems with our expectations, okay? All right, number one. Problem number one, our expectations are uninformed. They're uninformed. So you got the problems. Now, number one, expectations are uninformed. Now, for no other reason, what makes all of our expectations uninformed is that an expectation, by the very nature of what it is, is something that is in the future. A place we know nothing about. A place we, we, well, we know very little about. A place we have zero control over. A place where, let's face it, where we ought to have the least amount of confidence, right? We're uninformed. We don't know. So what we do is we consider the future when we have no business considering the future. And we try to anticipate the way it's going to go. But that inevitably gets muddied up with what we want to happen. And so we come up with this. This is my little very unexhausted list of uninformed expectations. 
We say things like, uh, now, and we don't say these out loud. We just say them to ourselves. We just live as if they're true. They're, they're unspoken expectations, see? We expect that we won't have health problems. Nobody ever gets diagnosed with something and goes, yep, yeah, mm, saw that coming. Yep. Yeah. Boy, I'm, I didn't expect it to be this long. Figured that would have happened a long time ago. No, it's always, <gasps> what? You're kidding me. We expect that all our loved ones are going to live long and fruitful lives. You can tell that so oftentimes by the way we deal with loss, even loss of people who have won the victory. We believe that our employer is not only going to recognize but reward our work ethic. That's certainly going to happen. Uh, we all grow up thinking that we're going to meet our spouse and fall madly in love. For sure, by age 24, that's definitely going to happen. We're going to have a couple kids, probably between two and four. Of course, they're all going to be healthy, and everything's going to go smooth. And me and my spouse, we're always going to see eye to eye, and everything's going to go smoothly. Even the gas gauge. Right? I mean, sure, that's what everybody thinks. Nobody stood in a room like this in front of all the people that they know and love and with a guy like me saying to you and to you and to you and to you. And nobody was thinking, nobody's standing up there looking into the face of the other person going, do I have what it takes to get through this disaster? I mean, do I have enough character and enough grit to be what God's calling me to be? Nobody says that. Everybody just thinks it's going to be, the, the, it's just going to be a, a never-ending honeymoon. It's going to be like it is on the movie screen. And the older we get, the more we ought to understand. Now, now, we do understand. The older we get, we do get a little wiser. We understand that bad things might happen. But we still don't think they will. We just realize that it's more likely that they might. So we have these expectations for financial prosperity. Vibrant relationships and sunshine shining in our lives. And just the mere fact that anybody else has that, even if they really don't, but our perception is that they do, well, then any God who has any sense of fairness is certainly going to watch out for me, right? Well, of course he is. God is the ultimate everyone gets a trophy. God, right? So the key to understanding the futility of our expectations is understanding that they are ours. That's the futile part. The problem is not that there are expectations. The problem is that they're our expectations. And if they're our expectations, then they're futile. Because remember... We, of all people, know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing, right? Yes. So the psalmist comes along in Psalm 62 and says, my favorite verse about expectations. Verse 5, my soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. There's, there's your verse. There's your expectation verse right there. That's the 100% guaranteed way to get away from our expectations and get God-centered 
expectations. See, God's not like us. And it's very foolish for us to in any way assume that he is like us and that he's going to behave like us, that he's going to react like us, and that he's going to do anything that would make sense to us. That is utterly foolish. The only part of me that what God does and the way he thinks and the way he behaves makes any sense are the parts of me that the Spirit of God within me has redeemed. That's it. And I'm not all the way there yet, and nor are you. It's a journey of sanctification. And so it's as if we're looking in a mirror bit by bit, day by day, piece by piece, right? Okay, number two, second problem. Our expectations are often, I put often in because I felt like by this point in the message, you already feel like you've been hit with a baseball bat. So I threw often in there, but really, they're always selfish. They're always selfish. Anytime it's your expectation or my expectation, it's 100% selfish all the time. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to just pause for a moment. Just in, in, the, in the secrecy of your own mind, just, you know, as God's reading and judging every thought and intention of your heart, go ahead in the quietness of that moment. I want you to pause and think about your perfect world. Your perfect world. Your perfect future. What would it look like? What, what is your perfect life? Now I want you to think about what is the opposite of that. What is the not perfect life? What is the worst case scenario? All the things that you definitely are hoping and dreading don't come true. What does it look like if they all come true? Now I want you to consider how many of those emotions and expectations on both sides of that coin are tied up in you. See, most of the time, really all the time, but... I know somebody in here is lying to themselves saying, what? So, okay. It's about us. It's about you. See, in your perfect world, in your perfect existence, with everything going the way you want it to go, everything's going good for you. And you're saying, well, no, it's not just me. I know it's not just you. It's your children, your grandchildren, because they're part of you. They're people you love. And every once in a while, you'll throw in a little good expectation for an acquaintance. But how many, how many parts of your expectation were linked to utter strangers? People that you don't know will never know. Probably zero. That's a problem. Because that's not at all how God thinks. Not at all. See, our expectations fail when they revolve around us because God's plans do not. We automatically fail in the expectation department the very minute that our expectations revolve around us because it in instantaneously puts us at odds with a God whose purposes and plans do not revolve around us. Which unfortunately is why there's so many Songs that we don't sing here because they're theologically wrong and they teach you to believe that God's world revolves around you. But it doesn't. That's not true. So, when it comes to the clash between our expectations and the plans and purpose of an all-powerful sovereign God, we lose every time. Every time. He's never going to change course. Never. 
He's never going to change course because me or you was hoping that it would go this way. That's never going to happen. Because in order to do that, he would have had to not been initially doing the absolute highest and best thing, which is impossible for him to do. So therefore, when your expectations clash with his plans and purposes, you lose every time. Every single time. You'd think, well, we ought to be amazingly proficient at this, and yet we're not. So we're uninformed, selfish, number three. It's going to get better, so hang on. This is the good part. Our expectations are often ignorant. I told you it was going to be amazing. I mean, I'm saying this in the absolute most loving way I know how. They're just ignorant. Our expectations so often frustrate us while we're focusing on ourselves the whole time God is utterly devoted to his perfect plan and purpose. And we come along, and when I say ignorant, I don't mean foolish or stupid, even though you know, those words would apply in a lot of instances, but that's not what I'm talking about. When I say ignorant, I mean they're ignorant specifically of who God really is. That if we knew who God really is, we would never have that expectation. If we had really plumbed the depths of his nature and character, if we were really abiding in his word, we would never have that expectation. Because it wouldn't make any sense. It would be utterly ridiculous. Right? What about, let me give you some examples of ignorance. God is only love. Oh, there's a hundred songs you could sing today that God's only love. That's ignorant and unhealthy. And you shouldn't, you, you, it's a, that is a pit you don't want to fall into. Yes, 1 John 4, 8 makes it crystal clear that the God of the Scripture is a God of love. And it's not just an attribute, it's part of the essence of who He is. That is utterly and completely true. But you are in great error when you only see God as love. That is a tragic error. Tragic error. The prevailing view today of God is like he's this gentle grandfather figure who delights in running around and handing out candy and blessings to all of his good people. However, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, who is love, is also utterly holy and utterly righteous and utterly committed to utter justice. Utterly. And you can't separate them. You can't, you can't say, you know, that I'm going to take this, but I'm not going to take it. It just will not stand. You can't do that. So, of course, we, we want God to bless us and care for us and answer our prayers. And we want him to fit snugly into our little, you know, understanding of who he is. But that doesn't change anything about his true character and nature. It doesn't change anything about His holiness and His righteousness. His, his utter commitment 
to, I mean, he's so committed to justice and righteousness that it drove him to sacrifice his son on a cross to reconcile a rebellious people. The reason the price of redemption was so astronomically, unbelievably high is because of his utter devotion and commitment to justice. And so we can't celebrate the cross and say that we're only celebrating the fact that God was motivated in love to the cross without acknowledging that it was his utter commitment to justice that brought it to reality. If he wasn't utterly committed to obedience to the Father, it never would have happened. He said, if it's possible, let the cup be passed from me. And the Father said, well, it's not. You know why? Because I don't overlook anything. I don't miss a detail. Every single sin must be paid. So you got to die. See, we don't, we don't sing about that love unless we're forced to. But that's God. What about God wants me to be happy? we got all these people running around. They, God wants me to be happy. Really? Well, that's crazy because it doesn't appear he wanted anybody in Scripture to be happy the way you think he wants you to be happy. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he was a happy fella, shipwrecked, beaten, I mean, you know, starving, freezing, imprisoned. He was full. I mean, is that the kind of happiness? Because if you want that kind of happiness, now that's true peace and joy. You can get that, but that's not the kind of happiness anybody's talking about today. Nobody's running around saying, well, yeah, God wants me to be happy like, like, like Paul. No, 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 no. Mm -mm. No. Or, you know, we find ourselves in the midst of a struggle or a detour, and we're, you know, telling ourselves that, well, God's not going to put more on me than I can handle. That sounds good. Sounds really good. But to cling to this idea that God's not going to put more on you than you can handle alone, that, that is an error. That is an error. What is the entire narrative of Scripture teaching us about every single person on every single page that you've ever been uh, introduced to in Scripture? Show me one person in Scripture that God didn't put way more on their back than they could handle alone. How do you think we learn how to depend on God? How do you think we learn how to depend on our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because the boulder on our shoulder is more than we can carry alone. Right? Well, yes. But you know what we do? We say, well, God's not going to put more on me than, than I can handle. So when the rug gets jerked out from under us and life starts going crazy, you know what we do? We hunker down in isolation and we just start trying to carry it by ourselves because we're too prideful. It's just error. Our failure to understand who God is, is what, and what his priorities are is often one of the biggest factors in our unmet expectations. I mean, all these disappointments that we're facing, all these times where we're just utterly bewildered by what's going on around us, I'm telling you, the source of it, if you just follow the breadcrumbs backwards, it's going to take you right back to the place where you really didn't understand who God is and what his priorities are. 
So that's the problem. Let's deal with them. Dealing with unmet expectations. So what's the, what's the common response to a derailed life? Show me a map. Give me a map so I can get back on track. Come on, give me five things. Pastor, show me, tell me what to do. Give me the, give me the steps. I, I need a map to get my life back on track. I want directions. I want answers. I want solutions. Well, I would say that's a mistake. It's not going to work. It's a mistake. It's not how it works. It fails to understand that God's primary purpose in allowing the pain in the first place. is that all the valuable lessons are learned on the way back. It's always about the way back. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey too. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way. See, this morning, this is what I want you to understand. Our real need is not directions to our final destination. That's not what we need. What we need is fuel to continue the journey. That's what we need. See, the problem that we have in a, in a detour, the problem, listen, if you're here this morning and you're saying, man, my life is a disaster right now, okay, praise the Lord that you're here today. This is what you need to understand. You do not need a road map to get back on the path. That's not what you need. What you need is fuel in the tank to keep pressing forward, to keep being faithful, because what the hardest thing to do when you're bewildered and you don't understand what's going on is to be faithful, right? The easy thing to do is to turn around and take off running into the wilderness because it's scary and you don't understand. But what we need to do is to keep walking. And we need to think about, hey, wait a minute. Why am I surprised by this? Hold on a second. Let me just remind myself of who the God of the Scripture is. Now, now wait. What? And why was I thinking that things would be a different way? And just start immersing yourself in the wisdom of who God is. See, listen, you don't need to be stressed out about the destination. If you're a child of God, your destiny has been sealed. That's done. See, the thing about it is, is you can't, if you belong to Jesus, you can't miss the party. You can't lose it, which is the whole point I'm trying to make. Why are we playing it safe? If you can't lose the most precious thing in the world you could ever have, you can't lose, then what are we doing? We ought to be the most fearless, ferocious army marching forward that ever existed. I mean, we, I mean, it's mind-boggling. There, we got people right here in this room, and you would say, I, I don't tell people about Jesus because I'm, I don't know what to say, or I'm intimidated, or I'm, that is insanity. It's insanity. Millions of people are dying every single day and going to an eternal hell. And we're running around going, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm just timid. I don't, I don't do well with rejection. You've got to be kidding me. Now, you can't lose what you got. So if you got it, you can't lose it. But thank God I won't be next to you at the judgment seat of Christ. 
You'll have to do that on your own. So what do we do? How do we deal with them? Number one, we need to look for God's purposes in our own and not our own best interests. Look, you got to look at your life and go, what is God's purpose in this? And everything that wants, I mean, I'm telling you everything in me wants to look at my own best interest. I mean, wouldn't you know I'm going to be preaching about detours? You don't see the irony in all that? In the last nine days, I've probably spent 60 hours in airports. And I'm thinking about detours. Not our own best interest. Look, remember in John chapter 9, Jesus walking with his disciples. They pass this blind man. And the disciples say, hey, Lord, who sinned, him or his parents? Who, who's the cause for his impairment? Remember that? Now, he's a grown man. They're like, hey, why is he blind? Who sinned to cause him to be blind? And Jesus said, oh, no, he's not blind because of sin. He's blind for the glory of God. Now, at that moment, the Bible doesn't say this. I'm going, hey, what? Wait, hold on one second before we take another step. I cannot follow you another step until I understand this. Their theological world just got wrecked. This guy has never looked into the face of his parents. He's never seen a sunset. He's never one time known what it is to see the world in which he lives in. He didn't do anything to deserve that. He didn't do anything to cause that. The whole thing is so that Jesus could walk by, perform a miracle, and the glory of God could be shown to the people around. Now, why don't you just let that set on your expectations for a moment? I mean, that'll jack you up. I mean, if you're here this morning and you're not saved, and you came here thinking, you know, maybe today's a day. Well, maybe after that, it's not. Maybe this is what you need to know. This, this Jesus... The Jesus of this Bible, my Savior, he's wild and scary and unpredictable and radical. And he will say, oh, yeah, that guy, he's been blind his whole entire life so that I could heal him and get glory from that. And if you don't like that, that's just too bad because that's how it is. That's not our expectation. That messes with us because we are out for our own best interest. Number two, we got to keep our expectations flexible. Look, I, I mean, we're, we're pulling this down to the, just the, I just want you to think this through and we're done. You, if you're here this morning and you have these rigid, firm expectations, you're setting yourself up for disaster. You're just a, you're a sitting duck. Discouragement is, some of you just get pounded every single, you know, like, you know that person that you know that's just, just like, they're just, habit, they're just cranky, habitually. They like, their spiritual gift is crankiness. You know that person, they never smile, they're just annoyed and aggravated and cranky and complain all the time. I'm just going to tell you something, you know how that happened? I'm telling you, I guarantee you, their problem You've thought, what is their problem? They, they like, 
have never once not got up on the wrong side of the bed. Their problem is expectations. They have rigid expectations. If you have rigid expectations, you are going to be a cranky individual. Because you can't serve God with rigid expectations. It's impossible. Not the God of this Bible. Now, you can, do some, you can make up some God, but not this God. No, 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 no. That's, there's, there's no way. Mm-mm. There is no way you have rigid expectations and you read John chapter 9 and your head doesn't explode. There's just no way. Scripture comes along in James chapter 4 and says, Now come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city or spend a year there, or buy and sell or make a profit, whereas do you know what will happen tomorrow? See, the Bible's like, fool, do you even know what's going to happen tomorrow? What are you talking about? For what is your life? Is it not a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. See, the scripture there is not condemning having expectations. And it's not condemning any sort of planning for the future. It's rebuking the attitude of believers that assumes that they're able to carry out their plans. You understand? That's the foolishness of it. All right. Six things you can expect. Because we got to... I even gave you the scripture references, okay? Because I want to help. I want us to get better here. I really do. I want you to take these six things and I want you to just saturate your heart and your mind with them, okay? Here's six expectations you can take to the bank. You can cash these suckers in every day. And it, they just keep on paying, 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 paying. It's so good, Okay? Number one, transformation. You can expect transformation. See, when you become a follower of the Lord Jesus, you're going to change. You will become different. Your motivations, the way you see the world, your your, uh, priorities are going to change. It's all going to change as a result of having Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's going to happen. So you should expect transformation. And that's a glorious thing to expect. And every day you ought to be cashing that in. And so the shock ought not be when you look in the mirror and go, whoa, I've changed. Or when somebody comes up to you and say, you know, I can tell you've really been growing. You must be in D group and reading the Bible all the time. And now things are changing. You shouldn't be shocked by that. If you're in the word, that's going to happen. And you ought to be absolutely shocked if it's not happening. Number two, trouble. And I mean this is a gift. This is a gift. You should expect trouble. Just take a deep breath. Okay? It ought to be a relief. John 16, 33, in this world we'll face tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. Jesus says it's a blessing to know that. He promised trouble. He knew it was going to happen. He didn't hold it back from us. It's normal. It's expected. Don't freak out. Don't be, the, don't be the Christ follower or Christ professor who every little thing that happens, you melt down and fall apart, okay? Don't, don't do that. It's not a good witness at all. And for the love of God, don't put it on Facebook. Because <laughs> now you involve me in it. And I don't appreciate it. 
Third expectation, life. You ought to expect to live life. Life. I'm talking about life and life what? Abundantly. Vibrantly. I mean, you should expect that you have in Christ been made fully alive. That the Bible says that the power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in me and you. That we ought to be able to see things that we never thought we could see, do things we never thought we could do, feel and experience and discern things that we never thought we could. I mean, it is a radical change life. You should expect that. Don't settle for anything less than that. Number four, significance. You should have this ongoing, daily, moment by moment, 24 hours, seven day a week expectation of significance. Because the true significance of who you are is that you were created in the image of the God who reigns supremely over everything. So just that is mind-blowing. So that in and of itself makes you significant. And then beyond that, the discovery that God's utter commitment to his purpose to be utterly glorified is not in conflict with my utter tendency to want to be totally satisfied, that those two things can can come together in this beautiful mixture and actually propel me forward in Christ, that's Uh, That's just as good as it could possibly get right there. You see, to waste your life is to not do what you were designed to do. But to catapult your life forward into the glorious arms of your amazing Savior is to devote yourself utterly to delighting in Him. Fifth expectation that's wonderful is a future. Like you just, it doesn't matter what's happening. Look, right now, our brother Todd is utterly devastated, and rightfully so. He's, he's literally shredded between the two worlds. On one hand, the person he loves most in the world, he's so excited for and thankful and grateful to God for. We prayed and cried last night and just rejoiced in God's goodness. And at the same time, the, 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 the fact that he's facing life apart from his soulmate is devastating. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, we got to just stop, take a deep breath and go, whoa, now. I got a future. Like... It's secure, like it's there. It's not changing. So therefore, I'm free to live a life without limits. Fear has no place in my life. Because what's most valuable can't be lost. So when Jesus comes along and says, why would you fear someone who could only kill the body? It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yes. He said, you should never fear somebody who can only kill you. Why would you be afraid of that? Why is he saying that? Because you have a future and you ought to bank on it because it can't be taken from you. And five would be enough, but one more. An expectation that you're never alone. Never. Not one millisecond. Ever. Wherever you go, whatever you do, faithful, unfaithful, 
in the light, in the dark. He never leaves you, forsakes you. He's always with you. He's always working. He's always, his, his purposes are always active. He said, go, be my ambassadors. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age, right? That's right. So I know that's a lot from just Elijah running. But now we have a foundation to go forward in the weeks to come. So here's my challenge for you. Think and ponder on these things. Embrace the radical nature of our God. He's not docile and boring and slack. He's vibrant and amazing and dangerous and scary at times. And don't, don't chicken out. Get on the roller coaster. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's the most exhilarating adventure you can ever imagine. Let's stand and bow our heads.